0: Hey, In Context listeners, we wanted to let y'all know that several of the big book cover-to-cover bonus episodes are brought to you in part by our friends at Faithlife. Faithlife creates electronic tools and resources for Bible study, including the Logos Bible software. Several of the subject matter experts you'll be hearing from in our bonus episodes are professors from the Logos Mobile Ed Programme. These men and women teach a variety of online courses through Logos, where you can purchase a single class, work towards a certificate, or even an accredited seminary degree. And right now, Logos is offering a special promo code of 15% off to all In Context listeners. Just go to Logos.com forward slash In Context to see all their offerings and get 15% off now through December 24th. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. Welcome back to Michael Easley in Context. I'm your co-host, Hannah Seymour, sitting here with the Dr. Michael Easley.
1: How are you, young lady?
0: I am doing great. How, How are, are those you? two boys? They're Good they're sweet, they're funny.
1: They're the easiest children (laughs) on the planet. You and Tyler are greatly blessed, I'm telling you. We are.
0: We know that, we believe it, and we are grateful for it. so. So we are just marching on through the Pentateuch.
1: And it's been interesting, the feedback we've gotten already has been so encouraging. Thanks for those of you who listen and, and drop us an email, let us know and info at or
0: uh, Michael at or how, how do they, what's the best way to email us? They can email us at info at com or question at michaelincontext.com. Or an Ask a,
1: Dr. E. Yes, for an Ask Dr. Yeah, e. Which we've got to get to work on. But the point is, thanks for your comments because we, we are encouraged by your response. And uh, Hannah and I... Came up with this idea to bring. I think it was really Hannah's idea to bring <laughs> subject matter experts alongside. And um, we've got a long time relationship with Logos Bible Software. Yep, I've been using it. I was an early, early adopter when it was CD Word, and a um, hundred years ago. And Logos has become a index for me for studying Scripture. I use Logos, not hyperbole, every single day. It's the second thing I open on my computer. And I live in it. I use it on my tablet and occasionally on my phone. My eyes are too bad. <laughs> I need a tablet or a screen. But all that to say, it's an incredible resource. Imagine having all your commentaries and all your Bible versions and right-click to get to a Hebrew definition or a Greek definition or a theology handbook. It's just a wonderful, wonderful resource. And as part of that, uh, Lagos has a mobile ed curriculum. Logos Mobile Ed Curriculum Program. You can actually do a degree. I think it's through Knox Seminary now.
0: I don't know. I think they're just about to release some information about yeah, a whole full-on accredited seminary experience. But they also have different uh, certificate programs and tons of really well-done online courses.
1: So they went and found the, the best subject matter experts in different fields. And we, uh, I did not know him prior to our interviews, but Dr. Mark Chavales is a professor of history at the University of Wisconsin in La Crosse. He has authored and or co-authored many books, including Mesopotamia and the Bible, the InterVarsity Press Bible Background Commentary, Old Testament, which, by the way, is a great single-volume book uh, that surveys high level a lot of Old Testament history. He was co-editor of the Ancient Near East and Women in the Ancient Near East, which is one of the reasons we wanted to talk to him uh, coming from a perspective of how women are viewed in the Old Testament. He has done fellowships at Harvard, Yale, Cornell, and others. He has nine seasons of excavations. We should probably interview him just about that sometime.
2: Totally.
1: Uh, And the Bronze Age sites in Syria. His research over the past decade has focused on interconnections between ancient Mesopotamia along as areas as Anatoly, Iran, Egypt, Syria, Palestine, etc. What he brings to the table is a focus from a bronze Syrian age to the third millennium. And all that means to you and me is, how do we think about the Old Testament from a Syrian-Babylonian lens perspective. And he'll talk about that a little bit in our interviews. So it is with great delight that we have Dr. Chavalis on uh, two special episodes, right?
0: Yep. Today in Numbers and then in a future week on Judges.
1: Well, we're glad you're joining us on the broadcast today. It's my pleasure to have dr Dr. Mark Shivalis. Dr. Shivalis, is a pedigree you've just heard and are open, but it's a privilege to have you on the broadcast. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. It's my pleasure. Let's jump right in, uh, as our podcast listeners already know what we're about. And uh, one of the areas, you have a Logos Mobile Ed course that people can uh, get credit for. They can take a series of courses online through Logos' ministry. But you have some subject matter expertise, particularly in the areas of numbers. So, uh, before we dive into some of the details, give me a 50,000 foot overview of sort of the background or context of ha- how you think this helps Bible believing Christians today.
3: Well, I'm a Mesopotamian area scholar who happens to love the Bible. And so technically speaking, I'm not an Old Testament scholar, but my goal as a historian is to place the Bible in its proper context. And so as one of my colleagues, John Walton, has said, um, sort of tongue-in-cheek, but I think that there's a ring of truth to it, the Bible was written for us, but not to us, especially the Old Testament. So in order to really understand it fully in in a way that will Gather all of the deep insights and things that God wants us to get. We have to understand the original context to which the Bible was written. Now we couldn't have done that very well uh, 150, 175 years ago until uh, people began digging up uh, the documents from the ancient Near East, and to their utter amazement, they found that that these documents provided a context for understanding many of the stories and narratives and laws and other things from the Old Testament. At the beginning, I think it was considered somewhat uh, intimidating because they found out that many of the law codes, for example, the Hammurabi Code and others, were quite a bit older than the Old Testament. Uh, But I think that in many respects, the Old Testament, if you think of Abraham, uh, Hebrew origins, they claim that their origins are from of the Chaldees, well, that's in southern Mesopotamia, and so in many respects what they're doing is that they're claiming to be from Mesopotamia itself. Abraham was a, a, probably just an average one-of-the-mill Mesopotamian, perhaps an Amorite, who God called out of the middle of uh, the area to, in a sense, uh, be reconditioned to understand the world as it really was. Uh, and the spiritual world also. So I think that we have to put the Bible in that context. I suppose it's in the same way that if I was living in 5019 AD and all I had to understand uh, the world from 3,000 years earlier was Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn, um, I could understand lots of Mississippi life, but I would understand a lot better if I uncovered the Library of Congress uh, in that. Then the Huckleberry Finn would come alive. And so, in many respects, the Bible has has come alive in ways that have been somewhat disconcerting, uh, because we find that that the people that that constructed the Bible thought very differently about the world than we do. They had different ideas, the different languages, their worldview was different, uh, etc. In fact, it actually reflects the worldview of these other people, and and, and I think, in many respects, the Bible was written to counteract much of that worldview. So, for example, Genesis 1 is a reaction to the Babylonian understanding of the origin of things, and Moses simply turned it on its head by saying that God was the one who created the universe, a bodiless spirit who created matter rather than the other way around, where everyone was just convinced that matter was eternal it had no personhood and somehow personhood came out of matter.
1: Let me interrupt for just a second doc and and I sure. I, I love your framing of context because that's the stickler for me though I was trained was you can't teach the Bible without teaching the context to the people, how they understood right. it as first first hearers authorial intent, and then how we you know the danger of principalizing which a lot of us do. Well, we draw a principle from this. And so let let me go back for my own re-education as well as our our friends who listen. Um, Ancient Near East is a phrase a lot of us academics and trained people toss around. Give the Western brain uh, education folks here in the States who maybe don't, a a simple definition. When we speak of ancient Near Eastern, this is a...
3: Yeah, we would correspond to the modern-day Middle East, and so it would be corresponding to the countries of Iran, Iraq, Syria, Israel, Jordan, uh, Turkey, and Egypt, roughly speaking. So that's pretty much the, uh, the geographic uh, region of the ancient Near East, the eastern Mediterranean world.
1: And you mentioned Babylonian in, in one of your comments earlier. To understand uh, whether it's the Gilgamesh epic or some of the Babylonian influence, heavily influenced the Hebrew way of thinking, correct? Well,
3: I think I would put it in a different way. Okay. I don't think they influenced them. I think they were part of that tradition. So it's not as if Moses is thinking, wow, boy, I'm really influenced by this. How, well, how no, but, but, but the cultural
1: context, the cultural context which Moses lived in is largely yeah. af- affected because of the Babylonian culture, right?
3: Right, but I argue that because they were part of it. That, that was them, and it would be in the same way that if you're living in 5019 A.D. and you find a legal statues from Wisconsin, and then you're shocked to find out that in the 19th century you find legal statues from California, you're figuring, boy, these two are related. I, I wonder who influenced who. And of course, there's a bigger picture to it. There's a much larger legal tradition right. that area. So the legal tradition of Israel wasn't influenced by Babylonia. They were all part of the same tradition.
1: Right. Okay. And I appreciate that clarification. Let's talk. So we're thinking about women in numbers in the, in the book of numbers, part of the Pentateuch. Um, give us some of the, uh, the misconceptions that Bible readers might have today when they read these passages that seem atrocious or hard to understand, or women were chattel. Help us think through some of those misunderstandings.
3: Okay. Well, I think I'll start with an analogy. If I, uh, Give you a book, I don't know, uh, a manual on how to do plumbing. Okay, since I don't know anything about it, and the introduction will tell me all about this and and the dos and the don'ts and how to do that. But I but I only need to know one thing. I need to know how to put this little screw into this area so the water will stop spewing out. So I'm just going to jump to chapter 16 and look at that one thing. Well, you know what I've done is is that I really can't understand the context. Of putting this screw into this particular place because I didn't read the introduction or the preface. And so for me, in order to understand the book of Numbers, and this might sound sort of silly, but in order to understand the book of Numbers, I have to read the preface, and the preface is Genesis 1 and 2. And because once I get to Genesis 3, everything collapses like a house of cards for obvious reasons. And so I think Genesis one and two is the ideal as to how, to how the world is supposed to work, and so males and females are supposed to work together in tandem. Uh, that whole idea of them of them, of, the, of the woman being an answer or a, or a helper,
2: a helper mm-hmm.
3: as if in front of him, that idiom there I think means that she's an exact equal to him, uh, though they might have vocational differences. they are equal in in God's eyes and equal in authority, equal in in a lot of different ways that might pan out differently.
1: We often uh, compare the word you mentioned, Etzer, and how the psalmist uses that word, God is my helper. And that, of course, is not demeaning to talk about God being your helper. This is someone who has more resources, more knowledge than you. So we could even suggest that uh, Eve was more knowledgeable and more competent in areas than Adam, even though pre-fall, because they're image-bearers of God, correct? Well, I think
3: that, practically speaking, I think that's true, I think grammatically speaking, what the writer is saying is that he knows that the word Ezra can either be a superior or an inferior or an equal, and I think he goes to great pains to show that Eve is an equal. That's, I think, what that last part means, that's in front of him. So in other words... This isn't equal as or it's not a superior, it's not as an inferior. And but except that once you get to Genesis three, everything falls apart. And if you think about it, every family in Genesis after uh, Genesis three is dysfunctional and it gets worse and worse. And I think it's sort of funny, um, I sort of tongue in cheek will tell someone, Well, yeah, look at what the patriarchs do and do the opposite because usually the only person who comes out uh, looking good in Genesis is God because of course he puts everything right and he's able to continue his plan in spite of these people who are trying hard and Abraham has faith, but he still makes, you know, constant mistakes at it. So when I get to numbers, uh, we're living now in the real world, not the ideal world of Genesis one and two, and there's a lot of horrible things going on. None of them are sanctioned by God. In fact, I think this is you can see this by what Jesus was asked in Matthew, I think it's 19, when he's asked about whether you could divorce your wife, he doesn't go back to a law. He goes back to Genesis 1 and 2. The ideal was is that, no, you would have no business divorcing your wife if you realized what the original ideal was, that you came together. And so when you get to numbers, we're already looking at a flawed culture, and so it's not as if this is something that we're supposed to be doing at every point. If we go back to Eden, we have no need for this. This is why I think even when Paul talks about the law being the law of love, it transcends much of what we have in the Old Testament. Now I'm getting theological, which I try never to do. <laughs> so, so now we get to Numbers 5, and I think, I, I again, I have to put it in the proper context. Oh, uh, men are having multiple wives. Men are doing this. Uh, this clearly looks like it's something that's favoring the male, etc. And my answer is, yes, it is. But if you want to put it right, you go back to Genesis 1 and 2 and realize that the ideal was that this was not so. However, in the real world, this is how things act. And so we have to make a law for the real world. Because, of course, the first thing you look at in Numbers chapter 5.
1: Let me read part of this for our folks, okay? Sure, of course. This is Numbers chapter 5, verse 11. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, If any man's wife goes astray, and is unfaithful to him, and a man has intercourse with her, and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and she is undetected, although she has defiled herself, and there is no witness against her, and she has not been caught in the act, if a spirit of jealousy comes over him, if he is jealous of his wife when she has defiled herself, or if a spirit of jealousy comes over him, and he is jealous of his wife, when she has not defiled herself, and then it goes on. So to your comment, it sounds like he's in a better standing. It's all her fault. And back to your point, this is the this is the corrective nature of the mess we's in, right? Yes. Help us out now. Help us out. How does this test for adultery, uh, what did it look like in numbers, and how do we understand it? Well,
3: uh, first of all, I think that, that the passage itself to a Western thinker is completely convoluted. In other right. words, you or I, if we were given the commission to write this out, we would have completely reorganized it because, uh, but but that's not the point. And Israelites thought differently than us. They did not think, they just didn't think the way that we do. They had different categories for their literature and their thinking patterns. Their thinking patterns are actually much like the Mesopotamians in many respects, they ordered things differently. Uh, I even think that Genesis, the beginning of Genesis, could very well be more thematic than chronological and I don't or sequential so and I'm not sure exactly what that would mean but i'll I'll digress i will get back to this and so when I look at numbers, I have to realize they're thinking differently, and so when i and and furthermore, though I'm not a Hebrew scholar. Uh, I know enough about Hebrew to know that, that not only is the beginning of the passage kind of eluded, it's really, really hard to understand because it's, it's providing connections that are not normally done in other parts of, of the Old Testament. And so uh, we really don't know exactly how to interpret these. But let me give it a shot. First of all, of course, the question might be, well, doesn't a female get to have the same issue? And the answer is no. Everyone knows in the ancient Near Eastern world, a male had, at least technically speaking, the sexual rights over his the, the women in his family. The family had, had very, very powerful rights. I think what's going on is a man has a bad feeling about his wife, but he, of course, has no proof about it. He just has a bad feeling. That's the spirit of jealousy, which, of course, uh, for the ancients, Probably, probably thought that this meant there was some sort of divine being that was causing him to think differently than he normally would. Uh, again, this is all; these are all carryovers from the pagan world, and so the figures of speeches continue. I think in the same mode. So he thinks bad about his wife, and of course, just like when they find a dead body later on in numbers and they don't know who did it, they have to allow God to make that determination. So. Here, we don't know whether the woman has done anything wrong or not. The man has a bad feeling about her, and so he's decided to push the issue. Now, frankly, uh, I, th- I think this fellow here in Numbers chapter five is not very bright because, in many respects, this is a lose-lose situation. So, the man has a bad feeling about his wife. He only has one recourse: he has to publicly shame her in front of the congregation. So he takes her in front of, you know, the elders and. Um, to, and of course her hair will now be unbound. The reason that it's unbound means that she always had her hair bound in public. That means she's now going to be rendered vulnerable before God. The assumption about this whole bitter water and water, all bitterness,
2: there, right? This, this
3: is really alien to, our, uh, to anything that we can think of. Even to modern day Judaism, this is so strange, but it fits perfectly in the ancient Near Eastern world of magic and, and medicine and everything else that that the first problem, if you have a malady, the first issue is, is to look at the spiritual reason behind the malady. And I think the Bible even hints at things like that, too. That's the culture itself. God isn't going to right every one of these wrongs. He has a he has much bigger fist to fry right now than worrying about every particular cultural peccadillo that they have. And so this has to be cleared up. The man is convinced that something's wrong. He puts his wife in front of the... Uh, an uh, audience, the reason the wife wouldn't do this to husband is because there is there was no rule about a husband. If if he was if he was in an adulterous relationship with a, the wife of a social equal, the, the guy would kill him. So there wouldn't be any issue for that. Here there's nothing has happened. So she's now put forward the uh, the bitter water is probably a deterrent. In other words, if she's really guilty, she's not going to want to go through this and she's not going to confess it but since she doesn't confess it, she now has to prove her innocence. Uh, in Mesopotamia, they would have done this uh, as a river ordeal, where if a man accuses another man's wife of adultery, she has to jump in the river and we think swim under the underwater for a period of time to prove her innocence. If she jumps up early, she's guilty. If she dies, she's guilty. And so here, this is the probably the Hebrew equivalent of that. She's been accused of something horrible. She now has to drink the water. And what is fascinating to me is she not only has to drink the bitter water, she also, the priest, will now write out the curse and washes the curse into the bitter water, uh, the the dirt and the water together, um, which doesn't sound very fun to drink. And you think about it, that means that they believe that the curse had some efficacious nature to it. And I, I guess my answer to that is, did the Israelites believe in magic? You bet they did. Uh, you, uh, But they sure. believed it was bad and evil. And so this is something that must have been acceptable. In other words, this is imitation magic or something that God must have accepted. So she now drinks the bitter water, and then something really weird happens. If she drinks the bitter water... And it says if her thigh falls away, then she's guilty. Well, I I racked my brains over that, but it's pretty obvious that this must be a euphemism for something, because, of course, at the end of the passage, if she's guilty, she can't have kids any longer. Well, how do these things connect? You know, and what does it mean to have your thigh fall away? Well, as you probably know, the Bible has lots of euphemisms for the sexual organs of humans. Often it'll talk about them by knees or thigh or feet or something.
1: Abdomen, right.
3: Yes, and so the fallen away thigh here is probably what scholars or medical people call a prolapsed uterus, meaning that some the muscles in the uterus don't work very well, and the uterus will fall through uh, the woman's private parts and come out, and obviously she can't get pregnant any longer if that occurs. And that will prove that she's guilty. You're thinking, wait a minute. How does that work? Um, I have no idea how it works, of course. But it also sort of projects the mindset of the ancient Israelite. For them, if if you have a medical condition uh, that's bad, it's your fault. In other words, first I'm going to figure out that you've done something wrong, and then go and and reverse it and, and go backwards. Of course, Jesus knocked that out of the water uh, in the New Testament by talking about the fact that no. Uh, There's no one-to-one correspondence between that. It doesn't mean that God believed this in the Old Testament. It means that that they made a law to compensate for human beings' sin. Uh, And so I think that's what's going on here. So the woman, of course, if she's innocent, in other words, she drinks the water. I'm I'm wondering whether drinking all that water and and ink, etc., might cause my uterus to to, um, collapse. But It might take days or weeks for this to take effect. In other words, she goes home, and, you know, I'm thinking the husband has got to have his head examined because if he goes home, if his wife's guilty, well, that's bad. If she's innocent, what is she going to say to him? I told you that I was innocent, and you just shamed me in front of everybody. If you think we're going back in that uh, wedding tent any time soon, you got another thing coming, buddy. So this is a really strange law.
1: Now, let me ask a question. So, and we know that sometimes physical things in the Old Testament, whether it's an axe head floating or what, we have we have obviously uh, miracles, supernatural, above nature. They defy the laws right. of nature. When Jesus turns water to wine, he's violated all kinds of laws of nature. And so could there be something, as this is part of the ironic law, the Mosaic law expanded, that just whatever this bitter water is, maybe it's an herb, maybe it goes back to Mara, the waters of bitterness, who knows. But we've got this emblem, and that God supernaturally is intervening through this thing that exposes her guilt or innocence. And I'm with you. I mean, if the guy accuses his wife of this, you would hope that spirit of jealousy, and we don't know what that is, but that you know internal spiritual check, whatever you want to call it, You know, I think my wife's been unfaithful. And so this is was well, the testing system that was, you know, invented right or created uh, by God's law, and the the outcome. All I'm saying is the outcome then would be God's hand, not the bitter water, not whatever. You know, it was it was this is something God potentially used.
3: Well, I think that you're ultimately correct, but I sort of live, especially when studying the Old Testament, I I live with a lot of messiness, and I think that, that especially for evangelical Christians. We don't like the messy stuff. We need to um, resolve the issues, and I think this is this one is irresolvable. The text does not give you a hint anywhere that something supernatural is happening. They're simply saying this is what you do, and there is there is obviously there is a heavenly element to this because God's presiding over it, but it doesn't give you it doesn't afford you any possibility of thinking that something different is going on, or This is simply how you do it, and and I think that any Israelite or anybody from the ancient years would have looked at this and said, yeah, this is business as usual. You know, another thing in Mesopotamia is that if a woman was accused of something and nobody knew whether she did it, they would simply do a divination to the God and ask the God what to do about it. In other words, what do we do with this woman? She did this or that, and the God would tell them. This is simply a way of the God telling them or God telling them how to deal with this issue. If there's something supernatural, it's not explicit in the text, and I wish it was, because, you know, it's easy to be very uncomfortable about this. You know, how do I put this in some sort of application process? My answer is, I don't, until I read the whole book of Numbers, or maybe the whole Pentateuch to figure out how God is working. But if I splice it up in the particulars, there's no sermon illustration to find here. <laughs>
1: Here's the recipe for the bitter water. Take it home, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's move on uh, and and talk about um, some of these inheritance laws. And, and you you refer sure. to Numbers uh, twenty seven and thirty six along the right. same line. Help us out there.
3: Well, you know, I I as a historian, I think one of my favorite laws in all the Bible is Numbers twenty seven because it's almost as if. We've been kind of like the Wizard of Oz, and you go back there and you you open up the veil and you see the little man behind the scenes and Of course, I don't mean that Moses is the little man behind the scenes, but what i what we get in numbers twenty seven is what did they do when they came across a situation they hadn't thought about before? What do we do about this? You know, I look at the Old Testament law codes and if it were me, and I'm glad it wasn't me, now I would have ordered things very differently, and I also would have been much more comprehensive. I think the, the Christian has to realize that the Old Testament laws are not—not not only are they not comprehensive, not only are they in, not in the order that I would like them to be, most of them are case studies. In other words, they're individual circumstances that probably could not be dealt with on a family level, and so there had to be a law made about it. Now, of course— as a Christian, I look at it and say, yeah, well, it was divinely inspired. Of, of course it was. But it was still done through a human process. And so here we have the number 27. You know, If, if you're a female, you, uh, when you're a teenage girl, you are now going to be married into another family, and you are legally part of that other family. Even though you might have emotional ties to your family of origin, they have no legal ties over you. It's now either your father-in-law or your husband who now has you know, legal precedence over you. They're your ward. And this is exactly how it was in Mesopotamia. So there's nothing different here from that standpoint. And so now we have a, a problematic situation. In Mesopotamia, uh, if I didn't have a son who carried on my uh, name, it was more important than just carrying on my name. When I died, uh, I still had a consciousness, and I still had to be fed and watered in the underworld. Now, uh, where, of course, in Mesopotamia they they used that you had dirty water and stale dust. And so your firstborn son was the one who would actually come to your graveside. And by the way, you're, you were probably buried underneath the floors of, of, the, of the private house where the family still was. You, you were still conscious, you just didn't get around very well any longer, and the firstborn one, someone would come and feed and water you. Now, of course, we don't have that in the Bible, but we still have survivals from that, because I'm desperately hoping that my family will continue on my name. In fact, I think it's even hinted at when Joseph says to his family, uh, to paraphrase at the end of, the, of Genesis, um, you folks are going to be in Egypt for a long time, and when you leave, make sure my bones go with you. Yep. Take because my bones. he's probably thinking of the same thing. I still have a consciousness. I don't want to stay here. I want to go with you guys. And, of course, this doesn't make any sense to us. Like, like what you know, absent with a body present with the Lord. Who cares where my bones go? But the Israelites didn't think that way, and so they're not being put right at every single point. So here it's really important that the inheritance stay within the family. That must be what's going on here. We have a law. Uh, we originally thought it was in Lipid Ishkar Code even five years ago, I thought. Now I think it's from the Ornnama which is an even earlier law, where it simply says if a man does not have male issue, then the females that he give issue to will inherit his state. It, it doesn't go any further than that. So the same thing happens here, and it, it does it through a particular incident. The Daughters of the Lofa had my favorite one is Hagla, which, of course, is an unfortunate name for an English-speaking person to, to give to a female, or anybody, I suppose. So anyway, the five daughters, all of whom must be underage. And, and when I teach my course on women in the, in the ancient world, I say these girls have a lot of herds, but they, they are pretty assertive, not what you might expect but they go to Moses, and in a sense, they've unveiled things for us. They're showing us how laws were made. Of course, some laws were given right to them by God directly. Other laws, obviously, came from their cultural environment, and they were constructed, though divinely inspired, but they were certainly constructed with the culture in mind. So I must, my property must go to a male heir. I don't have one. And in fact, this is probably corresponds to the leveret where, you know, uh, if I die, that means my brother will have to marry my my dead wife, and then the first child will be my legal heir. Right.
1: Take the name. Um,
3: but, and why wouldn't you want to do that? Because economically speaking, you knew that you weren't getting the inheritance. You weren't getting the firstborn inheritance. Your child was that was yours biologically, but it was your brother's. You know, in terms of uh, legality. So here, the daughters come in front of Moses say, "Why? Why aren't we? It's not fair. The inheritance." is going to the closest living male relatives, why don't we get it? That's not fair.
1: Do you think in the tribal context, the clan context, and, and and again, this is your subject matter expertise, not mine, but I'm thinking of Ruth and Boaz and you know the acquiring of the property and the wife and the children, so it was this was a clan that was then being cared for, so we didn't leave well, yeah. uh, uh, a widow without resource?
3: Well, yes, in fact, there, if you think about it, that strange passage about the um, the in Deuteronomy 25, where the law is right, the goal is not. Unfortunately, speaking, you have to read it, when you read the text as it is, bald as it is, the goal is not to take care of the widow; it's to raise up the name of the man.
1: I, I agree how with is, you, <laughs> but but from patriarchal society, uh, that's how we read it. But is it unfair? or improper to make the conclusion, that included the clan tribe survival. Again, back to Boaz yes. and, and Ruth. I acquire yes. the woman, I acquire Naomi, I acquire all the, I, It's my responsibility now because the closer kinsman redeemer did not step up to do his lawful uh, job. The next in line, we might say, says I'll take care of that.
3: Right, and I think it's there, but I'm just saying it's not explicit. on face value. Probably. Yeah, it's
1: not it's not being specified. But is that an unfair conclusion?
3: No, it's, I don't think it's an unfair conclusion. And I think that uh, you know, interesting that Boaz is really taking a, a couple of extra hits. Yeah. Because he takes care of a number. This one child. In fact, you know, in the rabbinical tradition they said Boaz was 84, and as soon as he and Ruth went into a wedding tent, he did his duty, and then he died. Uh, but uh, I don't want to go that far. But the point was, in in fact, the the fellow who didn't do it, Mr. So-and-so, he may not have been able to do it because it was damaging his inheritance.
1: Well, that's what he says. He, he complains about that. But I think the delicious part of that story is that his faithfulness, you know, is the kinsman redeemer is the one who steps forward and God blesses. Uh, you know, and that, that to me, again, right. one of these, again, your, your expertise of women in, in the Old Testament and sort of their role in how the scriptures are written uh, versus going back to Genesis 1:2, made in God's image. They're right. co-equal heirs to the kingdom of God. And, and yet, this is a male-dominated culture with Levitical Aaronic laws.
3: Right. And so I I think you're asked it right. So the always goes way over and
1: above
2: yeah.
3: what the the law was. And so that's right. And in fact, that's why the story's there to show that these people were of excellent character. No wonder David David's got good family stock, to say the least.
2: Good deal. So back to the
3: Zelofa <laughs> girls, they so Moses clearly had not dealt with this issue before and so to prepare for okay, girls, I don't know what to do. Just a minute, let me go talk to God. And my joke is he probably came right back in a minute. Oh, uh, <laughs> you girls are right. And so, uh, and so, in a sense, what they've done is that they've shown us how a law was made. We could have huh. suspected it in many points, uh, but this is a case law made because of an incident that occurred. This is a rather a benign incident, but an incident occurred that caused the law to be, or, or something to be modified. The same thing happens in our culture. We've had all these horrible school shootings. So what has it done? It's caused us to modify laws to compensate for that issue. Um, and so, but of course, they didn't go far enough here. So Moses says, "All right, the girls' right; they should get the inheritance." All right. Now, nine chapters later, and I'll just sort of uh, paraphrase this. Um, the, the problem is okay, uh oh the girls are not old enough to get married. What do we do now? Because if they marry outside the clan, that means the inheritance of the clan is leaving it's and jail-based. going to somewhere else, yep, and so we can't allow that to happen, so now, Moses, in other words, now the addendum to the law is made, so as it, and of course, the law is. Okay, the, the daughters of Zalopa can marry anybody they want, which is quite interesting, as long as, of course, their last name is Zalopa had. In other words, they've got to marry from the same clan. Right. My, my joke to my daughter would have been okay, honey, if we're living back then, you can marry anybody you want as long as, as, long as their last name before. is Shabbalah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, she would have had some pickings.
1: Right. Uh,
3: so here, to me, as a historian, and this, this just, I'm, I'm thrilled because it's unveiled. How the laws were made, it makes me think, oh, a lot of the other laws probably were made in the same way the law of the goring ox or the whatever other laws for compensation. And they're remarkably like the Babylonian laws. Why? Because they're in the same cultural milieu, same legal milieu, the same issues are occurring. And so there's a, a much wider legal tradition from which they're drawing their laws. But of course, the biblical laws have a very different flavor to them.
1: Now, if we think of Talionic justice, uh, and, and we think of you know, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth' it, it's sort of a hierarchy of laws. Uh, would it be uh, improper or am am I wrong in thinking that these subsets, and this goes back to jethro's observation of Moses you're, you're wearing yourself out you've got to you know which I would argue becomes the synagogue model you've got to you know, appoint other faithful men to have these hearings. Uh, with people's complaints, but then when you had a problem that they couldn't resolve, it went up the ladder, so to speak. Right. And 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 if we have a lex talionis or a, a, you know eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth uh, type law issue, and so when you're talking about compensation laws, well, what would be the bigger law here? Well, he injured this and he injured that. We lost that, then we need to lose that. How do we? Is that a is that yes. a fair way of thinking about this?
3: Yes. But there's one big difference, and I think that that to me the similarities are ultimately superficial because the meaning behind the laws is different. And I'll show you for the the goring ox. If you have a goring ox in Mesopotamia that kills uh, someone else, uh, there'll be compensation for it. Or if it kills an ox, you have to compensate, etc. However, in the Bible, if an ox gores a human, not only are you compensated for the human, you also have to kill the ox. Why is the ox killed? What is the, the ox is just being an ox, in other words, it's doing what? And you think, oh, that's for a deterrent. No, it's not. There's no hint that it says a deterrent. In the same way that, uh, and I hate to bring this up, but I'll be tasteful about it. It's uh, the, the bestiality laws in the uh, in Leviticus. You kill the humans that are participating, but the animals also put to death. Well, the animal is an animal. It's because. J.J. J. Finkelstein, this great Mesopotamian scholar who is Jewish, was convinced after many years of study that it's because the animal somehow violated the sanctity of the image bearer. Whether they mm. did it on purpose or not, they had to be destroyed. And so that's the only way to explain the, the biblical uh, issue of killing an animal. And so I think the meaning behind these laws was ultimately derived from the divine source. In fact, in Mesopotamia, the laws, when you see Hammurabi sitting there, he's handing his law code to the god Shamash. In other words, here's my law code that I made. This is my annual report. I hope you'll keep me on for another year. But in the Bible, of course, the laws come from the divine source to the human. It's just the reverse. And so that's where they're really, really different.
1: Okay, let's, as we kind of wind down this program, uh, give us the... Okay, so what the application when you you talked about in context in Mesopotamia thinking and biblical thinking uh, in twenty first century evangelical fundamental bible believing right. you know broad umbrella Christians, what do we take away from this at high level?
3: Well, I think that the best way to look at this is in in a in a big picture issue rather than a small one, and in the big picture, my answer is, This tells me more about the character of God, because really, the whole purpose of the laws is to protect the innocent and the downtrodden. So it shows God really wanted to be merciful from the beginning. And he's orderly, he's structured, he wants equal compensation for things to occur. So, in other words, this tells me more about God's character, and it is hammered down over and over again. If I try to make spiritual application for each situation as it comes up, I think I'm going to force the issue, and I'm going to spiritualize it and make make applications that are not from the text, which in many respects renders the power of Scripture ineffective, in my opinion. So Mm. uh, that's why the Old Testament is so hard to preach from, in my opinion. And when it is preached from, they do it in a way that, that really doesn't—to It's to me, it's a wild, untamed book that uh, is very, very hard to understand. And this is why trying to look at the context at least gives me a fighting chance to understand this <laughs> alien culture and this alien way of thinking.
1: Dr. Mark Chavales, we appreciate your time. and look forward to our next broadcast with you. Thanks for your insights and your time. Thank you very much.
0: Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.